2009, the former bassist for Elf and Rainbow, Craig Gruber gave an incredibly candid interview about a wide range of subjects during his tenure with both bands. Naturally, one of those subjects was Richie Blackmore. Gruber never sounded derogatory, just matter of fact. But when describing the behavior of Richie Blackmore, matter of fact ends up sounding kind of derogatory. For example, when Gruber said this, I remember being on tour with him when we didn't sell out. Richie would peek out from behind the curtain, and if the whole floor wasn't full, he wouldn't fucking play. He was just so temperamental. If it wasn't sold out, he wouldn't play. So he would take a separate car back to the hotel, stay in his room, and then go back to the plane. And this, for me, is where Richie Blackmore being a total bitch kind of stops being fun. Because it's one thing to be a dick in the studio to your multimillionaire rock star frenemies, it's another thing to fuck your fans over for absolutely no reason. I mean, no reason other than you didn't draw enough of a crowd to make yourself feel as important as you act. Blackmore apologists may make the case that for a generational talent like Richie Blackmore, that kind of behavior is just part of the package deal. That if you want the musical genius, you have to take the emotional child with it, because to constrain one is to constrain the other. And I don't know that there is anything I find to be less true in the entire universe. Maybe string theory. Libertarianism? I don't know. I think Richie Blackmore would be just as talented a musician if he didn't routinely stage silent tantrums to punish anyone around him who threatened his ego. In fact, he might even have been better. Because all of that drama is just unfocused and ultimately wasted energy. And I wonder what someone as superlatively talented as Richie Blackmore could have achieved if he had found a way to channel that energy into music instead of using it to terrorize those in his immediate vicinity. Maybe he would have been present at his induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame instead of posting on Facebook about how he had been banned from the event, which he hadn't. Or maybe he'd be making chart-topping reunion albums like Black Sabbath or receiving Kennedy Center honors like Led Zeppelin. Instead. At age 78, Blackmore now plays in a neo-medieval folk rock band called Blackmore's Night, a combination of his own last name and that of the only other consistent band member, Blackmore's wife Mark IV, Candace Knight. As a group, they perform exclusively at Renaissance fairs and standalone concerts in European castles to sold-out crowds of exactly 12 people, all of whom attend the event while dressed in period costume. And if you were ever hoping to hear a sadder sentence in human history, I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. Although in October of this year, Blackmore admitted to an interviewer about his current gig that we're still looking for an audience, if you might know anybody that would show up. So there's hope for that sadder sentence yet. But don't feel too bad for 2023 Richie Blackmore because 1975 Richie Blackmore will definitely earn the heavy-handed irony to which he's now doomed. 
Shortly after Rainbow finished recording their debut, the former band members of ELF found out that Blackmore was secretly auditioning drummers to replace Gary Driscoll. In that same 2009 interview, Craig Gruber described what would become a common scene for all future former members of Rainbow, which as of this year, number 24 in total. Enough to scrimmage against themselves in football with a sub for each team. And this is the story, according to Gruber, of how Rainbow lost its first three members. So they brought Cozy in to rehearse for a week and didn't tell Gary. Here's Gary, living right down the beach from me, and we're fucking rehearsing to go out on tour. How fucking horrible. That caused a huge upheaval. Mickey Lee and Gary were in the band for so many years before I joined. Mickey had a fit. He didn't show up one day. He got so smashed. I mean, he just drank an incredible amount of scotch and just got fucking trashed. And we couldn't find him for a couple of days. Eventually, however, they did find him. After a days-long bender, he spent down at the beach, like Dennis Wilson, but with a better backstroke. If only Rhonda was there that day. Because she could have helped. You know what? Let's go on a little journey together, yeah? You know when you're watching a TV show and a character does something that might be morally questionable, but it's the catalyst for their rise to power? Like Walter White blows up a meth dealer known only as Boss Lowe on his way to becoming Heisenberg, and you're like, fuck yeah, Walt, that was badass. And now shit's about to get real. And it totally does. But then right before the commercial break, they show you like a little kid waiting for his dad to pick him up, but the dad doesn't show. So a teacher comes over and says, come on, Brandon, we'll go back to the office and call home. He's probably just late. And as they turn back toward the school, you see the kid's lunchbox with his name written on it as B. Oslo, which you then recognize as Bosslo or Boss Low. Oh no! What? Orphans are sad! And now the thing that was totally awesome a minute ago and you were kind of rooting for has a really ugly human cost attached to it. That's like this. Or at least I hope, because that took a while. And because this is Blackmore putting together the band, it's going to make one of the most influential albums in early heavy metal history. The Cozy that Gruber refers to in this quote is drummer Cozy Powell, who is now considered one of the greatest drummers of all time. And Blackmore currently sees only a rival meth dealer sitting behind the kit. So I think you know where this is going. Gruber continued, Mickey Lee said, if you're getting rid of Chops, that was Gary's nickname, then I'm leaving too. This is not what we did. This is not what we worked our lives, heart, lungs, and liver out for, to be sliced and fucking diced. So Mickey Lee quit. There was a huge explosion. Then they told Gary, and he literally cried. Literally fucking cried. That's when I said, you know what? Fuck this. If this is the way this is going, it's only a matter of time before you fucking pluck me too. They were left with Cozy, Ronnie, and Richie. And now the camera slowly zooms in on Gary Driscoll's lunchbox with his name written on it as C. Hops, which you then recognize as Chops. Or something. I don't know, I'm just trying to say that the story of Rising is both awesome and kind of sad. And Gary Driscoll's story, unfortunately, only gets sadder from here. After his firing from Rainbow, Driscoll found the only work that he could installing tile for a living and supplementing his income with the occasional gig as a session drummer. And a decade later, in 1987, 
Gary Driscoll's body was found in the motel room of a friend who also happened to be a cocaine dealer that had left for the evening, allowing Gary to sleep off whatever it was he was coming down from at the motel. He was found the next day beaten, stabbed, and shot twice in the head in what was most likely a case of mistaken identity. The man accused of his murder, whose fingerprints were found on Driscoll's abandoned car a few miles away, was acquitted on a challenge to handgun evidence in the case, which remains unsolved to this day. Now seems like a bad time to play Tarot Woman to introduce the next album, so let me just tell you about the new additions to the band. Blackmore hired the aforementioned Cozy Powell on drums, Tony Carey to replace Mickey Lee Soul on keyboards, and in for Craig Gruber at bass was Necessary Evil and the borrowed time we've all been living on, Gotham's Reckoning himself, Jimmy Bain. Yeah, I'm gonna keep doing that joke every time somebody's named Bain. Look, if you're gonna keep naming people Bain, I'm gonna keep making Bain jokes. So, balls in your court. Let the games begin. And in February of 1976, Rainbow First Blood Part Two went back to Munich to record a 16 minute and 50 second A-side of just killer up-tempo hard rock with lyrics that ranged from solid and satisfying to absolute dog shit and a 16 minute 38 second B-side that would completely decimate the limitations of early metal and echo into the future of the genre like gravitational waves of sheer and uncompromising sonic violence. But first, here's Tarot Woman. Woman is both a fantastic way to open an album and a near-perfect example of why I feel so torn by the A-side of Rainbow's Rising album. Musically, albums rarely rock fucking harder than these four songs, but if these tracks comprised an EP with the exception of Run With A Wolf, it could have been titled Here's a List of Women and the Various Reasons They Scare Us. In addition to the opener, which warns about a lady who badly wants to get her hands on your deck, of cards. Sorry, I had a little phlegm there. There's Starstruck, a cautionary tale about a magical or demonic or evil groupie. Not clear exactly what the issue is, other than wherever you go, she's there asking for an autograph or a souvenir, which is just so sinister, right? Even the moon. She's on the moon, too. Dio tells us, I could fly to the moon, but she'd soon find a way to be there. I mean, I think it'd have to be a spaceship, right? There's not really another way to get to the moon. One thing I do appreciate about Dio's lyrics when warning us about dangerous people is that he often gives you their exact location. Like on Snake Charmer from the debut, when he tells you he'll hypnotize and tell you lies, he's hiding at the top of the stairs. With the final added bit of advice, 
close your door. So, you know, just don't take those stairs. Try to avoid the landing altogether. Just take the elevator and then pretend like you don't see him, you know? Much as we don't want to be hypnotized or told lies, we also don't want to embarrass him. He thinks he found a really good hiding spot, so what's the harm in playing along? He's not there for us. He's waiting for the suckers who took the stairs. And should have listened to more Rainbow. In the case of Lady Starstruck, Dio lets us know she's in back of a tree looking at me. All right, so just don't go behind that tree or, like, hiking anytime soon. Just stay out of the woods in general. It's tick season anyway. And then you just avoid the moon and you should be fine. I guess do you close your eyes doesn't exactly fit the formula. It's less a warning about lady danger and more of a question of etiquette. A very sexy question of etiquette. The larger issue I have with these songs is that the music is so good, and that kind of gets lost in the deep suck of some of these lyrics. It's not my favorite subject matter, but I could put aside the AC-ish, DC-esque nature of the lyrical content if it weren't for each of these tunes having at least one utterly unconscionable line that really feels like an affront to, well, me personally. In Tarot Woman, the offending line reads, she can take you there, the entrance to the fair, my, 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 ride the carousel, cast a magic spell, you can fly, fly. Casting a magic spell to make a carousel fly is pretty boss, but I don't know that taking you to the entrance of the fair is really that impressive. The entrance is how everybody's supposed to get in. It's pretty clearly marked, I would guess. On Starstruck, however, it somehow gets worse with she wants a photograph and everybody laughs. But not me, cause I see she's creeping like a hungry cat. That's why her friends call her Whiskers. Ugh, deep cut there. Anybody? Will Ferrell? Harry Carey? SNL? No? Okay. And saving the worst for last, it's Dio's riff on the chorus of the fourth track, Do You Close Your Eyes? Do you close your eyes? Do you close your eyes? When you're making love, making sweet love to me. Which I guess depends on whether or not you can maintain eye contact while cringing harder than humanly fucking possible. I can't. And for the coupe de grace, the second verse of the song begins with, The logical trend is that I'll know in the end the things that make you smile. The logical trend? What are you, fucking Descartes? Wait, are you... Fucking Descartes? You know what? Don't answer that. Maybe it's the Dio apologist in me, but these lyrics feel like they fall somewhere between perfunctory and just straight up coerced. In 2020, Mickey Lee Soul talked about the lyric writing process when he was in Rainbow, saying Ronnie and Richie would get together, and I believe it was Richie who would suggest the lyrical content of the songs to go in a mystical direction. And that was all Ronnie needed. After that, it changed. And in a 1994 interview, when Dio was asked why he eventually left Rainbow, he explained that the final record on which he appeared was, quote, another chance for Richie to kick people in the teeth, I guess, citing the second round of lineup changes in three albums. But the central reason for the departure, according to Dio, was that Blackmore, quote, wanted to be a pop star. And he continued, I still wanted to have roots and intelligence. He wanted songs about love affairs. Well, there you go, Richie. Have another love affair. None of your marriages have worked out. Yee. Girls, you're both pretty. No, actually, sorry. Girls, neither of you are pretty. 
so I wonder how much of Rising's A-side is Ronnie James Dio writing what Richie Blackmore was asking him to, or possibly telling him to. Because while Blackmore was in Deep Purple as a member of that band, until the release of Rising, Rainbow was Richie Blackmore's band, despite his later assurances to Ronnie James Dio of the contrary. And yet, for whatever reason, the two men came together for a final pair of eight-plus-minute tracks on Rising, concluding the album at the height of their respective talents. Two of the most gifted musicians of their generation, with Cozy Powell as an arguable third, writing their names in flaming letters on the history of heavy metal, in all caps, size 48 font. These two songs, Stargazer and A Light in the Black, tell one continuous story. It begins, naturally, with a wizard, the stargazer of the title, a slaveholder who has set before his chattel masses the great task of building a tower to the sky. And from here, this mighty and terrible figure will launch himself and the hopes of his indentured servants into the black of night in search of a distant star. What it is that the wizard hopes to achieve upon successful resolution of his journey is unclear, but for those many who have dedicated their lives to his grand project, the construction of the Star Tower, built of brick and stone, of flesh and bone, is tied to the promise that they will soon be set free. But Ronnie James Dio is no ordinary storyteller, and unlike Tarot Woman or Starstruck, Dio knows he is not telling an ordinary story. Remember when I talked about the Arthurian legend as an allegory for the alchemical process of transformation? Well, I did. And the reason you'll hear a vaguely Middle Eastern sound in the instrumentation is because, as Dio explained in a 1975 interview with Circus, the song is set in Egypt, as Dio describes the titular stargazer as an alchemist who's become obsessed with flying. Now, I'm not arguing that Dio is a secret mystic working alchemical formulas into the music, but rather, as an extraordinary storyteller, we know Ronnie James Dio has the ability to operate on multiple levels of meaning at the same time. And while these binary tracks may not be describing the process of alchemy itself, the mystical blueprint of the alchemists was a description of a formula for the process of change. He may not be coding his pursuit of the Philosopher's Stone into the music, but he is very likely describing through allegory the very real process of a change, perhaps even a personal one, that Dio himself is undergoing during the recording of Rising that will begin to manifest itself subsequent to the album's release. Just something to track as we move forward. So rather than giving voice to the stargazer himself, Dio's narrative comes instead from the perspective of one of the serfs, who's toiled for nine years in the shadow of the wizard and in pursuit of some nebulous hope for freedom. Unfortunately, I already played the opening of the track, and as a storyteller myself, my principles dictate that I should not repeat myself, and therefore I have to refrain from playing the song for you now. <laughs> Are you kidding me? It's fucking Stargazer! I played maybe a minute of the opening on a show break two episodes ago. There's like seven minutes left on this track. Principles as a storyteller. You guys kill me with that Pollyanna shit. So let's get into it. If you remember the section I played in Dio Part 1, or if you know the song, you'll recall the lyrical refrain, Where is your star? Is it far? Is it far? Is it far? 
When do we leave? I believe. Yes, I believe. So pay particular attention to how those lyrics change upon their final iteration. This story, much like Dio's story, ends in something of an unexpected way, setting the stage for its even more unexpected sequel. And, as promised, in a 2011 documentary called Metal Evolution, anthropologist Sam Dunn posits Stargazer and A Light in the Black as the origin of a new subgenre in heavy metal. The B-side of Rainbow's sophomore record, Dunn argues, is the very birthplace of the soaring, theatrical, and symphonic anthems of what will come to be known as power metal. So without further ado, here's the conclusion to the first half of the final 16-plus minutes of Rainbow's Rising, the standard bearer for power metal aspirations for the next 50 years. The conclusion to Stargazer. I was not kidding when I said symphonic. That's the Munich Philharmonic Orchestra playing what Richie Blackmore called a half-Turkish scale, which I'm just gonna assume is a partial plate of those square gummy candies. If you had trouble catching the lyrics, let me just read a bit of what I think is most significant here. 
All eyes see the figure of the wizard as he climbs to the top of the world. No sound as he falls instead of rising. Time standing still, then there's blood on the sand. Oh, I see his face. Where was your star? Was it far? Was it far? When did we leave? We believed. We believed. We believed. And as the song accelerates towards its conclusion, Dio's lyrical riffing foreshadows the album closer and the end of the Stargazer saga, A Light in the Black. Look at my flesh and bone. Now look, 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 look at this tower of stone. I see a rainbow rising. Look there, on the horizon, and I'm coming home. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. And finally, the album closer, A Light in the Black, is the song of a slave, having been freed from the shackles of bondage and embarking on his sojourn toward home. It is a song of freedom, of the hope and the doubt that rises from the ashes of the sky tower and the fallen wizard. But it is also the song of a new vision. Somewhere within the narrator, there is a sense of loss, of disappointment. He's been given the freedom he so longed for, and now he finds himself wanting something more. And while the methods of the alchemist employed in attempting his journey to the stars were foolish and cruel, his dream of flight and hopes of a star-bound existence gave both the stargazer himself and his vassals a life made meaningful through purpose. And here is that song, the conclusion of the stargazer's saga, A Light in the Black. I don't know that there's a better B-side. Honestly, I'll think about it. You think about it. At AV4APOD. The journey home begins with doubt and a sense of aimlessness. The narrator is not driven toward home, but more drifting, as he says in the first verse. All my life, it seems, just a crazy dream. Reaching for somebody's star. Can't believe it all. Did he really fall? What to do now? I don't know. But the loss of purpose haunts him and begins to germinate in the form of an idea, a new vision, that perhaps the quest to reach the stars only failed because it was never the alchemist's quest to pursue. What if instead 
it was the quest of the narrator himself. As he tells it, the idea arrives like an open door that you've passed before, but you've never had the key. God, what a great lyric. Because unless I've been entering rooms incorrectly my entire life, a key is not required to unlock an open door. The idea that one does not possess the proper authority to unlock an open door is a poetic description of a self-imposed limitation. It's the dragon that Joseph Campbell implores us to open up. And the narrator is now realizing that his particular dragon died when it fell from the tower in the sky. It's just so hard for me to imagine that this is the same lyricist who wrote She's Creepin' Like a Hungry Cat only three songs earlier. Somewhere past the 10-minute mark of the B-side, as a listener, I start to wonder which character the title of Stargazer refers to. We know now that it's not the crumpled corpse being slowly buried by the desert beneath the shadow of his tower. And as the narrator looks back upon the scene of the wizard's great downfall, a sudden glimmer of possibility emerges from the dusts of failure. There is now a light in the black, and the home to which he was returning no longer feels like home at all. His home is among the stars. And so Rising concludes, with the character who began as a passive observer and auxiliary witness to great events, having truly witnessed only the death of his beliefs, and therefore the death of his limitations in the previous song. Or in his own words, I breathed the air before, heard the thunder roar, but never knew it was for me. What he discovers here is a new belief in himself and a limitless future as he speaks the final words of the album, I See a Star.
two figures, one great and one small, a cruel wizard possessed of inhuman magical gifts and the diminutive servant to his will, an anonymous subject enslaved to the magician's grand vision, building a tower to the sky upon the corpses of the human fodder that the unfeeling alchemist left in the wake of his rise to greatness. And through his hubris, the failure of his outsized ego and the limits of his imagination, the great wizard falls to his death, the final victim of his own misguided lust to possess the stars. The fallen wizard has given freedom to those who once executed his every command out of fear and out of faith, but now they have seen their former master's true nature, not a god, not even a wizard. As the narrator tells us, they have now seen his face, not from the earth far below as before, but up close, his blood upon the sand below their feet. And so this small and once servile man now takes up the mantle of his former master and god, and fueled by the rebirth of his belief, not in the magician, but in himself, he determines to succeed where he has watched the wizard fail, to rise from the very place his predecessor began to fall. Huh. Sound like anybody we know? On the next, and volume for all, we will explore the possibility that Ronnie James Dio's ascendance to metal godhood was precipitated by what he perceived as the decline of Richie Blackmore. As we cover the final album by Rainbow, Dio's departure from the band, the abundance of doubt and hope he faced as a result of that choice, and the light that he would soon find in a new shade of black. Hey, it might even come in the form of a devil you know. Only one way to be sure. Fuck around and find out on the next and volume for all.